This is episode number 237 with Principal Attorney Jessica Merlet. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. My name is Kirill Eremenko, data science coach and lifestyle entrepreneur. And each week we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build your successful career in data science. Thanks for being here today. And now let's make the complex simple. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Super excited to have you back here on the show because today I have a very special guest joining us for this episode, a dear friend of mine, Jessica Merle, who is the principal attorney of the law office of Jessica Merle and its European counterpart, Merle Legal Consulting. What you need to know right off the bat about Jessica is that she's an extremely experienced lawyer. She is licensed in three states in the US, in Illinois, Georgia, and Washington DC. And now she resides in the Netherlands where she offers GDPR legal services as well as other compliance services to her European clients. So as you can already sense, we have a very exciting guest on the show today. And what we talked about is all about GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation, which was introduced in Europe in May 2018. And before you say anything, you do need to hear these insights. And that why is that? Well, whether you are a business owner, a director, an executive of an enterprise, or a data analyst or data scientist analyzing data, you do need to know all about GDPR. And moreover, whether you're in Europe or not in Europe, a lot of these things will still apply to your company and you do need to know them. More details are available in the podcast, so make sure to tune in and soak in all this amazing knowledge that Jessica shared with us today. In fact, today you'll get such a comprehensive overview of GDPR that you can call this podcast GDPR A to Z, everything you need to know about this new legislation. We will cover off the whole life cycle of data within a company. Uh, what are the reasons why and how and when you can capture data? What are re the requirements for that? How you have to store data in an organization and how long you can store it for and how you can and cannot analyze data about your customers. Plus, in addition to all of that, you will learn terms such as data controller, data processor, what sensitive information is, what affirmative consent is, the four pillars of GDPR, six legal bases for capturing data, and much, much more. In addition to all of that, Jessica shared several case studies which will help you understand GDPR even better. And the cherry on top of the ice cream is that we've prepared a special cheat sheet for you to download and keep for you to follow along with this podcast if you're in front of a computer or for you to later on revise so that you can soak this knowledge even better in. So you can find this cheat sheet at www.superdatascience.com slash 237. That's the show notes where we usually post everything about our episodes. Once again, that's superdatascience.com slash two, three, seven. There you can download this cheat sheet and keep it. And that way you will always be able to reference 
all these things that you will hear on this podcast. And without further ado, I bring to you Principal Attorney Jessica Merrillet. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Super excited to have you back here on the show. And today I've got a very special guest, a great friend of mine and a very experienced lawyer and principal attorney, Jessica Merley. Jess, welcome to the show. How are you today? I am great, Carol. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing very, very well. Thank you very much. It's uh, very nice and hot here in Australia. How's it going in the Netherlands? It's... Well, you know, I'm sitting here looking outside of my window at all of these birds that are playing. Everyone is waiting and I think eating their seeds because we're supposed to have quite a lot of snow, which is a rarity mm. for the Netherlands, but we are supposed to get quite a lot of it later today. So I'm, I'm kind of excited for that, actually. That's awesome. And uh, it's, it's really cool. Like, I love uh, how we've been chatting about your house moving. So for our listeners... Jessica's moving house soon and I still can't get my head around how she's managing to move her most valued possession, the, the jacuzzi. Tell us a bit about that, your outdoor spa. Well, my, uh, <laughs> my outdoor spa, I guess. You know, I had originally thought that I was going to sell it for this house move simply because it is such a uh, difficult thing. But I think I can hire a few strong men from the local university to uh, figure out how to move it to the new house. Luckily, it's not that far away, maybe five or 10 kilometers. So I think it, I think it will make it. Uh, I'm not sure how to get it hooked back up to all the electric once it gets there, but <laughs> hopefully it will be okay. And uh, hopefully all the snow will be melted by the time that all of that is happening as well. Nice, nice, that's really cool. Well, just very excited to have you on the show. It's it's been ages since we met and I think over the years we've really bonded through, you know, the different discussions we've been having about legal stuff and ideas and I really appreciate it was your idea to arrange this podcast. Tell us tell us why. Like out of where did this idea come from to come on the show and share the legal aspects of data and analytics? Sure. So Recently in Europe, uh, the, the whole data landscape has undergone a change. And I think many of, your, uh, many of your students and many of the people that listen to your podcast are probably familiar with that. I think it, it would be difficult um, to not be familiar with that. In fact, uh, because there have been quite a lot of uh, news articles and publications that have been coming out over the last year about how data and privacy has changed in Europe. And a few weeks ago, I actually did a course at Maastricht University to be a uh, certified data protection officer. Data protection officer is a position of uh, an independent position with a company that is in charge of really being a liaison, being a coordinator with the European data protection authorities, and to assist the company with analyzing uh, and, and ensuring compliance with these new laws. And I did the course, and in the course we talked really quite a lot about 
data analytics and how data processing, how doing data analytics, how AI, how all of that is impacted by the new uh, by the new laws, and in fact, how all of that also impacted the new laws and, and made the changes and, and drove some of the changes that have come about. And I thought really for your podcast listeners, it would be something different, but also something very informative and, and something that they're not necessarily thinking about all of the time, really. What are what are the laws and what has changed in the last year as to how analytics can be done? Fantastic. Fantastic. Super excited about that. It is indeed a very relevant topic in this day and age and uh, like everybody should be thinking about it if they're not already thinking about it. not just from company perspective and business leaders that's for sure if you're a business leader or owner or an executive listening to this then this is definitely something you have to be adept at and know about these things and even if you're just a practitioner inside a business and you might think this doesn't apply to me no it actually does there's a lot of things that you need to know about the legalities of using data and different types of analytics on that data um, that are coming into place. And so, Jess, um, when you mentioned like these new uh, regulations, are you talking about the GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation in Europe? Yes. So that came into effect in May of 2018. Uh, and it's something that all companies really are still trying to come into compliance with. I would say there's no company in the world that is uh, actually fully compliant or, or even a, a, a good part of the way there. Mm -hmm. uh, as we just saw, in fact, last week, uh, Google was fined 50 million euros for not being in compliance. So it's something that companies are, are working on. And uh, there's the GDPR. There's also a few other laws uh, that impact uh, data protection and data privacy. Uh, for example, we're currently reviewing uh, a new e-privacy directive, which talks about um, things like uh, things like additional data protection rules for telecommunication networks or internet service providers. Uh, it talks about metadata and talks about really confidentiality of communication. So that's another one that's, that's out there. It's currently under review. And I think a big takeaway from this is that the landscape really is, is constantly changing. Uh, not only do we have GDPR in Europe, but also, of course, we have the, the California uh, privacy and data protection rules that also recently have been modified. So it's not just Europe, uh, but the focus for today is Europe because that's really sort of our, our leading example mm. in the world right now. That's great. And just for those of you listening who are about to tune out because you're not in Europe but in US, I specifically asked just at the beginning, just before the podcast, how this affects companies outside of Europe. Jess, could you please repeat that whole um, uh, this description you mentioned about the three types of businesses and how they're affected by the GDPR? Sure. So a lot of people say, uh, or a lot of my clients as well come to me and they say, Jessica, this is not relevant 
to me. It's not relevant for me. Uh, I'm not based in Europe. But the GDPR doesn't care where your company is based. It doesn't care even if you're a company. Uh, you might be an individual that has a um, smaller startup, right, uh, that's located in Mongolia. Well, you know, you you're still have to comply with the GDPR if you meet some of the requirements. So, of course, companies that are based in Europe uh, have to comply with GDPR. Um, what we're looking at is, are you processing European customers' data or are you collecting European customers' data? So if you're based in Europe, naturally, by default, you're probably doing some collection of European uh, data, right? Um, also, if you're a public entity that's based in Europe, uh, then you have to uh, comply with GDPR as well. But also, I think more importantly for international companies that are asking themselves, do we have to comply and really that don't necessarily want to comply, what the GDPR asks is if you're um, doing any sort of large scale data collection of European customers. And actually, I want to back up. I'm going to probably use the word customer, but it doesn't only mean in this sense, uh, it doesn't only apply to customers. The GDPR also applies to if you have a workforce, for example, if you have independent contractors, if you're using vendors in, in Europe. So. It's not just customers that we're concerned with. We're concerned with, are you collecting uh, or are you processing data of any individual that's located in Europe, right? So not just customer. If I screw that up and say customer, mm -hmm. customer, customer during this, always keep in mind, please, that it's it's also your staff. It's also your vendors, whomever. Um, so we want to ask ourselves, is my company, is it doing large-scale processing of European data? And it, the, the GDPR doesn't really well define that. Uh, I have actually asked whether there are any sort of metrics that we can look at to say how many data subjects, data subject is, is the word that the GDPR uses to uh, sort of encompass customer and, and an independent contractor. So is there a certain number of data subjects that we have to be processing their data before we have to comply with GDPR or volume of data or um, duration of processing or the geographical extent? And the GDPR takes all of those things into consideration, but it doesn't really give us any sort of strict numbers on that. So we have a few examples that could, I think, be helpful for example, if a business does process a data subject's data in its regular course of business, or if it sells uh, products through e-commerce regularly to European customers, if it regularly collects and does data analytics on European uh, data subjects, if it processes real-time geolocation information of data subjects who are located in a fast food chain. In fact, I have a very specific example here that says if we're processing real-time geolocation data of customers of an international fast food chain for statistical purposes by a processor who might be specialized in uh, that type of data analytics. Even if that company is located in America, for example, that company would still have to comply with the GDPR. Wow. Um, if you're 
<laughs> if you are a, an insurance, if you're working for an insurance company, for example, or a bank that's an international uh, institution, that would have to comply with the GDPR if it has European customers. Um, for service providers, internet service providers, all those types of companies do have to comply. And really what the GDPR asks is, are you doing regular and systematic monitoring um, of any European data subjects? So are you, tra are you tracking them? Are you profiling them? Are you selling to them? Anything like that. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Thank you for the outline. I think that third point and the breadth to which it covers uh, businesses is extremely important. I, it pretty much covers almost any business that has kind of any sort of connection with uh, European customers or even not direct but indirect connection. Um, so now that we know who GDPR applies to, tell us a bit of, about what is GDPR? Why did it come about? I heard that before GDPR, before May 2018, the European um, privacy laws for internet use hadn't been changed for about 20 years. So wh what's triggered this uh, new legislation? Yeah, that's correct. So really what triggered it is, is that it was still based on old uh, methods of data collection, old methods of data processing. If you think how much technology has changed in the last 20 years, that was really the driving force behind the GDPR. And although it took 20 years to really come into effect, of course, that's simply because the legislation is, is quite slow. <laughs> um, and uh, so it, it has been in the works for, for quite a long time. There's already new laws that are in the works as well, um, updates and, and different directives. Uh, there's some that have been signed. For example, we have a, uh, a Council of Europe directive that also deals with data privacy uh, and data protection. It's been signed by 47 of the member states, but it's not yet um, you know, at, the, at the level that the GDPR is. So one of really the driving forces, if you think about how technology has changed in terms of data analytics, we, in the last 20 years, 20 years ago, we necessarily were not able to do such uh, regular and such systematic processing using things like profiling and, and scoring or location tracking or any of this and, and process it on such a large scale at such a quick pace, right? Mm. Uh, so that's something that has really changed and that's one of the main concerns of the European Commission in uh, enacting the GDPR. Mm -hmm. Okay, gotcha. Um, all right, so now we know who it applies to, where it came from. Uh, how, is GDPR is such a broad topic. Like, how long was the course that you took? It was an entire week, and that, that's just for the Data Protection Officer certification. There are many more levels, in fact, after that. Wow. <laughs> they can be done. Maastricht University, for example, is, is sort of the leading institute for uh, GDPR compliance training in Europe right now. Yep. And it is putting into place uh, even degree programs, uh, master's programs that focus on uh, GDPR that focus on data protection and privacy. Mm. So it's uh, it's ever changing and it's really growing to be a new industry at the current moment. Okay, gotcha. So uh, basically, that what that tells me is that we only have an hour here on this podcast, right? And <laughs> we got to cover off the most important things. And the way I think we're going to structure this is we're going to 
approach it through a like a way I like to deal with any kind of uh, company or how companies generally deal with that or where the pro the steps are required to deal with that. And th- there are three main steps. First one is you need to capture the data, then you need to store it, and then you need to analyze it to get the insights. And so I suggest we go in in, the, in that direction in those three steps, and we see how G, what GDPR says about each one of them. What do you say? Perfect. Okay. Let's do it. Let's do it. So let's start with the capture of data. What does GDPR say specifically about companies being allowed to capture certain data points and not being allowed to capture other data points? And why, why is that in place? Why can't a company just go out there and take all the data that is possibly available on its customers, capture all of it? Whoa. Is there any restrictions there? There are. So there are four main pillars of the GDPR. Um, one of them is that we want to limit the collection of data to its specific purpose. So that it's collected for very specific, explicit, and legitimate purposes. That's the first pillar, and I'm going to come back to that mm-hmm. in a minute. The, the second pillar, really, is that we want to minimize the data that we're collecting. So that means that we minimize. only want to... Not yes, and that's very important. Hmm. We want to only collect the adequate data that's adequate, that's relevant, and that is limited to what is necessary for the purpose that we identified before. Mm -hmm. We want to ensure that the data is accurate so that there's no what we call toxic data out there, um, that it's kept up to date, that it's uh, where only collected where necessary again, and that it's uh, kept confidential, that it's protected through security measures, and that it's only stored for certain periods of time. So those are some of the key concepts that the GDPR is considering. And really the overarching concept is that we only collect what is needed and for a specific purpose, and that we're accountable to the data subjects, right? The data subjects understand what's going on. They don't have any surprises. If we think back to Cambridge Analytica, the the main takeaway from that is that the data subjects were surprised how Mm -hmm. their data was being used. And that's what the the GDPR wants to avoid happening, that we don't surprise our customers. So we're only allowed to process data under six very specific specific legal principles or legal bases. Mm One of those is if we have consent. So does your data subject check a box that says, yes, you can process my data for X, Y, Z purpose, right? We're all familiar with that. Um, If it's necessary to perform a contract, okay? So if you say, uh, for example, I am going to purchase a pair of sneakers uh, from your company, then of course you need the the individual's name and billing address and shipping address, right, to send them those sneakers. So that's another basis that we can process it on. There's a legal but obligation. You might, sorry, but you might not need yeah. like the the IP address, or you might not need the country or the browser that he's using, whether he's on a mobile or a desktop device, in order to process that legal it, transaction. Exactly. So again, that goes back to data minimization. What do we actually need to fulfill the contract, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. So 
and only what we need. We should not be collecting more data than is necessary. And we know that for if you're doing data analytics, that's not necessarily what you want to hear, right? <laughs> yeah. Because the, the, the more opposite. data that's exactly the more data that is out there that you can collect, the the better the analytics are going to be, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the more information you can find out. So one of the things we really have to look at is the interplay between what is uh, what is driving the analytics or what is driving um, what is driving doing all of that and and the benefits that can be gotten from that versus the rights of the data subject to privacy and the rights of the data subject to have their um, data processed in a way that is accountable in a way that's transparent. Mm -hmm. I think this uh, also meets that important issue we discussed before the podcast that if somebody captures my data like Facebook or Google or any other company, Microsoft, if somebody captures my data, it's still my data. It doesn't belong to them. Can you tell, tell us a bit more about that? Sure. Um, before I do that, I actually want to mention one more legal basis. I don't want to go through sure, all sure. of them, but in fact, potentially the most important one of those is what we call the legitimate interest legal basis. So you can also collect data if the processing is necessary for the legitimate interest of the data controller, so of the company that is co collecting the data. Um, and this is where you can get a broader category where you can maybe get into more analytics um, if, if necessary, if desired. But that's what we want to look at more than anything is, is there a legitimate interest? What, what does that mean, legitimate interest? Yeah, so there's there's actually a three-step approach, if we want to get very technical, that we look at uh, what is the interest of the, what what is the purpose, right? What is the purpose of the collection? So perhaps the purpose of the collection is that the company wants to offer uh, a membership, a loyalty card, okay? Um, and it needs to know more about customers' purchasing habits. Mm-hmm in order to be able to offer a loyalty card that can give customers discounts, mm -hmm. okay? So it's going to allow the, uh, the data controller, it's going to allow the company that collects that data to collect more data than may be simply necessary to affect the, the purpose of, uh, of having the individual purchase, uh, whatever it is the company is selling, let's say it's a grocery store that's just to purchase the food and, and leave. This legitimate interest basis test might give the company, the grocery store chain, more of a reason to say, I'm also going to, uh, to track some other things, right? I'm going to ask them for their um, food preference or I'm going to ask them, track them in the store if they have an app open, um, that shows um, how long they stand in, in this aisle, for example, through uh, geolocation tracking to say they really like the green smoothie selection or things like this. Or you might ask them for their gender because uh, some products are not relevant to male or female customers. Exactly, exactly. So on the legitimate interest test then, we have more of a reason to do the, um, to do the analytics, to collect the data, 
But then, of course, we still have to make sure that the purpose is is legitimate, right? It's not just so that the company can take that data and um, go do something else. It's so that it can offer the stated discounts on its loyalty card, okay? Um, so are they actually doing what they're supposed to be doing, what they say they're doing with the data? Is it necessary to collect all of that data to give the loyalty card and to track the purchasing habits so that the loyalty card gives relevant discounts. And then there's also the question of balancing. That's the third thing the GDPR considers, which is, does an individual have more interest to not be tracked? Mm -hmm. Right. To not have the analytics performed um, than it does to uh, than it does for the company to actually be able to offer this loyalty or the discount card. Mm. So that's really the most important um, one of legal basis that we can consider. Okay, gotcha. So uh, legitimate issues. But couldn't you just say that pretty much. Any anything is a legitimate interest for the data processor for like for example I might not end up offering any I don't even intend offering any uh, discount loyalty card to my customers but I have a legitimate interest in collecting their geolocation data so I can segment my customers better and maybe I will find some clusters from there that will allow me to save money on my marketing is that a legitimate interest no <laughs> not at all because what 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 necessarily is the benefit for the data subject ah gotcha right? so it's a, legi- to, is it a legitimate interest of the data subject then it's not a legitimate interest of the data subject necessarily it's a legitimate interest uh, overall so our our main goal though and the gdpr's main uh, concern is really focusing on that data subject, mm. right? Mm-hmm. So, is the data subject going to be surprised? Mm-hmm. Is the data subject? Are we being transparent with why we're collecting the data? Mm-hmm. Are we being accountable to the data subject? So, if there's a legitimate interest, it needs to be very specific for a purpose that is not going to invade the data subject's rights to have his or her data collected. Um, it's not going to be uh, unnecessary for the controller to achieve their interest. So that's really what we want to ask ourselves. And legitimate interest does not fit everything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Okay, understood. So let's uh, let's maybe continue uh, with those six legal bases because you mentioned three legal consent if it's necessary to perform a legal contract, legitimate interest. Just for completeness' sake, what are the other three? Sure. So there's a legal obligation which is, um, for example, compliance with the legal obligation. Mm, mm-hmm. uh, I would say for, for your uh, podcast listeners, some of this is, is potentially not that relevant. There's public interest, so this is for use by a public entity. Uh, if there's going to be a task that's carried out by an official authority uh, that's been vested in the controller, Mm-hmm. Again, that's something that's set forth in the law. And also, if there's a vital interest. So, uh, for example, if we have someone who's unconscious and uh, we need to process their their data, <laughs> uh, maybe we need to look through their wallet and find their, um, I don't know, fi- fi- or look through their phone and see who their in case of emergency contact is, right? Mm. Um, something like this. It might be a vital interest. So, 
those potentially not that relevant to your podcast listeners, but those are the full the the full six legal bases for processing under the gotcha. GDPR. Gotcha. Yeah, I agree that those might be not as relevant, but at least it, on the other hand, it shows how comprehensive this legislation is. It takes even those situations into account. All right. Exactly. So so far, we've done the first step of the. Um, whole life cycle of data in an organization out of capture, storage, and processing. We've talked mostly about capture. And so in order to capture data, there's four main pillars. Just to recap, and correct me if I make a mistake anyway. So in order to capture data, they have to be one of the four main, or these four main pillars have to be met. Uh, It has to be specific, explicit, and legitimate, the process of the capture. Uh, we need to minimize the amount of data we capture. It has to be adequate and necessary. Uh, it has to be accurate so that there's no false information being captured. It has to be also uh, kept confidential uh, with security measures and stored only for certain periods of time. And we'll get to storage in a second. And we also talked about the six uh, legal bases on uh, the reasons for the capture. You need to have one of these six legal bases or basis is to in order to capture in the first place either legal consent if it's necessary to perform a legal contract legitimate interest legal obligation public interest or vital interest does that sum it up quite quite all right jessica yes exactly awesome all right so moving on to storage so you've already mentioned that uh, data needs to be stored confidentially uh, with security measures and only for certain periods of time let's elaborate a bit more about the, on that what does gdpr in general say about how organizations can store the data of their customers. Right, so in terms of the actual tech aspects of storage, that is not my uh, specialty. Mm -hmm. That's where you want to make sure that your data team is is working together, both with the lawyer, but also with with a tech uh, guy or or girl. Um, But in terms of how long we can store the data, that's something that the GDPR is very concerned with because we only are allowed to store the data for as long as is necessary to perform whatever that legal basis was. So, for example, if you use the legal basis of performing a contract, right, Mm -hmm. then we don't get to store that customer's data forever. Mm -hmm. If the customer, for example, chose to not create an account, well, we don't get to then take all of that customer's data and do analytics on it. uh, Because the only purpose of storing that data, of collecting that data, I should say, was to send them that pair of sneakers, if we go back to the hypothetical, Mm -hmm. right? So, we only are allowed to keep the data and do things with the data for as long as is uh, is necessary under that legal basis. And one thing that the GDPR is also concerned with is toxic data. So data that may be out there in data sets uh, that that are um, that are able to be identified, of course, or data that's out there in a company's system that is. Uh, old, that's outdated, that's no longer relevant, but that is just sitting around. And every company has this, of course, and every company has uh, has quite a lot of it. Um, so we want to ensure that really we have processes in place for deleting that data, and that we definitely should not be using that data 
past the time that's necessary. So that's one thing that is is really a focus of the GDPR, but it's also something that has to be disclosed to the data subjects in that privacy policy that everyone is familiar with. Hmm. Interesting. And so toxic data, are you referring to the notion of the right to be forgotten where you can email Google and say, I want these links deleted because they're about me and they're no longer relevant? No, but that is that is an important concept and one that we should probably talk about. Toxic data is more the idea that there's just this old data that's floating around, um, mm. data that's not necessary anymore, data that's not uh, being used for its original purpose. We see it a lot of times when um, data is is purchased, right? Or that data sets are purchased. That there might be some toxic data in that that is no longer accurate, or that's no longer you know able really to be used. Mm. We want to make sure that that's minimized, that that's deleted. But in terms of the right to be forgotten, that's a great thing that you mentioned. Mm. Um, because the GDPR has some, has not necessarily some new concepts, but some concepts that are uh, important that all companies need to be familiar with. And one of those is the right to ask that uh, your information be deleted. So you can go to a company, and this is very important for analytics providers as well. If you go to the original data controller, so the company that collected your data, and you say, I don't want you to have my data anymore. That company has to delete your data. Mm-hmm. As insofar as it's not necessary to keep it for a legal requirement, right? So mm-hmm. for for taxes, for example. But insofar as it's not necessary to have it for those kind of purposes, the company has to delete it. And not only does that controller So the company that collected it has to delete it. But it has to make sure that all of the data processors, all of the people down the line have to delete it as well. So if the company has given it to its analytics company, right, to its data processor that's doing analytics or or something along those lines, the analytics company also has to be able to go in and has to identify, be able to identify, if it can, um, that individual's data and delete it from not only its own system, but how it's being used as well. Wow, so that is a lot of work, I can imagine. Like, just yes. finding individual people's data. That's insane. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, so like, I could just go to Facebook and say, you, you know how hard it is to delete your profile of Facebook? Like, they, they, they say it's deleted, but it's still actually, well, the last I heard, it's, like, still floating around, and you can always restore it and stuff like that. So, theoretically, what you're saying is I can go to Facebook or email them or write to support or something else and say, mm-hmm. guys, I want this data removed completely. All my photos, all my profile, all my comments, everything needs to be gone, and I have the right to do that. Is that correct? Absolutely. Mm. You do. Um, whether or not they're, they're going to comply with that is a different, <laughs> is a different thing. But under the, the GDPR, Facebook would have to comply. Uh, and that's something that not just Facebook would have to comply with it, but again, um, everyone with whom it has shared the data. So sometimes if you look at these privacy statements, there are 40, 50, 400, 500 companies that the data controller is sharing a data subject's data with, uh, it has to be able to track down that data and to tell the the data subject, I have given your data to XYZ company, and 
it has to, uh, you have to be able to also ask XYZ company to delete your data and they have to comply as well. So it's, like I said, there's there's not necessarily any company that's actually compliant at this point mm-hmm. uh, because it is such a hard thing. It is such a difficult thing to to track all of this. But the the requirements of the GDPR are that we try mm-hmm. um, to have better processes in place to do so. Okay, gotcha, understood. All right, so in terms of storage, we talked about how long and uh, it has to only be stored for as long as it's necessary to perform that specific legal basis for which it was captured in the first place. We talked about toxic data that uh, it not, it must there must be no toxic data um, that uh, the individual the data subject has to well I- information about how long the storage is going to happen for has to be disclosed to the data subject. What about security measures? We've been hearing a lot about different hacks and you know Yahoo had uh, you know I think it was like a billion accounts hacked and. Um, lots of other like insurance providers have been hacked recently. There's, um, um, I think, one of the hotel chains was also hacked just a few months ago. So, what are the security measures that GDPR requires to be in place when data is stored by the data controller? Sure. So the security measures are more on the the tech side of things, but we do, of course, want to make sure that your company is compliant with industry standards. Mm -hmm. Right? Is it doing what it should do based on the sensitivity of the data that's being held based on uh, how that industry normally uh, stores and, and manages and secures data. Um, in some companies that may be having data, you know, secured in, in a warehouse with cameras, and other companies that may be sufficient to simply have um, some manager level access and a firewall and whatever other tech, <laughs> tech measures that are there. But part of the requirement is that we really do what's necessary um, to the industry standards uh, gotcha. when we can. So mm-hmm. that's the place where you, every company would need to refer to their industry standards. Okay. Yes. Understood. And also use a good use a good tech company. I mean, this uh, or a tech individual. This isn't something that we look at data as just a uh, as just the lawyer coming in and saying you have to do this, you have to do that. It's really a collaborative team effort uh, to have various people in, involved and know what's going on with the data, know what the the legal requirements are, and to be prepared to handle every situation mm-hmm. that may come up. In addition, it's important to consider that the burden of proof is on the processor. So it's on the the, uh, the company that's doing the analytics to prove that it has sufficient security measures in place. So that's not incumbent necessarily on the controller. That is going to come from the processor to show that it is up to industry standards. And it has to actually show this that it's up to industry standards and it has sufficient security measures in place before a single piece of data is transferred to that processor, before a single um, bit of analytics is done at all on that data, the processor has to have those security measures in place. And one thing that the data processors really need to think about is that every processing company has to have a processing agreement uh, under Article 28 of the GDPR, and those are going to set out the liabilities, the relationship between the processor and the controller, 
and that it also will sort of talk about the, the data flow, the security measures, all of that good stuff. So that's something that data processors really need to be uh, considerate of and a way that they can protect themselves is through that processing agreement. Okay, and also you mentioned, uh, while we were speaking, you mentioned the um, you know, terms and conditions and privacy policies. Um, so my question is, in regards to these privacy policies, oh, this is actually something we talked about before the podcast. I just wanted to clarify for the sake of everybody listening in. Um, if I don't, if, if as a data subject, as, as uh, a user, if I don't read the privacy policy of a website or a product or a company or a contract or the terms and conditions, if I don't read it fully, is that my fault? In a sense, yes. Right? Okay, so I'm responsible uh, for that. Yeah, you you are. Uh, I n none of us, um, except for maybe the lawyers who work in data protection, read the privacy policies. Mm -hmm. But it is uh, it's it's your responsibility. That being said, every company that has a privacy policy really needs to write it at at quite a low level. We don't want to see legal jargon, for example, in the privacy policies. And in fact. We're talking about uh, the idea that maybe it's better to even use a cartoon or to use a little video talking about privacy, just because that's more easily understandable mm. and would get people to to look at it um, more. Now, at times, and this is very important, I think, for your podcast listeners, that the Privacy policy is not, you don't always have to necessarily get that check the box consent to a privacy policy. But if you are doing processing of sensitive data, so if you're processing data that could be about um, biometric data or political data, religious data, um, data that talks about health or sex life or sexual orientation, that kind of data, the processing of it does require that there be that affirmative consent um, to the privacy policy. So that's something that's very important as well for your podcast listeners. Has your data controller, if, if your company is a data controller or if your company is a data processor, uh, ha have is that able to be tracked? Has there been an affirmative consent in the privacy policy? Mm, okay, gotcha. So affirmative consent, that's when somebody has to check that checkbox saying, yes, I agree to terms and conditions and the privacy policy. Yes. And it doesn't count if the checkbox is already pre-checked. No. Because <laughs> you see that a lot, right? Like some companies, like you put in your email or whatever else and the checkbox is there, but it's already pre-checked for you. Well, that's not affirmative consent. That's just passive consent. Yes. Mm -hmm. that's, that's exactly correct. Interesting. So... These things are important to, to know, like the distinctions that some types of data, sensitive data, which you mentioned sex data, sexual orientation data, religious data, biometric data, require that affirmative consent. Yes. And there's this actually, Carol, if I can uh, interrupt for just a minute. Sure. I want to make it very clear for your podcast listeners also that there's three categories when this affirmative consent is necessary. So the, the first one is your if you're processing that sensitive data, mm -hmm. right? So there's several categories of sensitive data, not categories, but areas of sensitive data. The second one is if you're doing automated decision making. So here's where our data analytics comes in, mm -hmm. of course. 
if there's automated decision making or decision making that doesn't have necessarily a human oversight to it, um, so AI, for example, affirmative consent is or, or explicit consent is, is really what it's called is required. And then also, if we're transferring the data to a country that's not adequate, most countries are not, are not adequate. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so if there's a data transfer that's going from uh, Europe to China, for example, or to um, wherever it may be, also that affirmative consent or that explicit consent is required. Gotcha. Okay, that's really cool. Thank you for clarifying. So three uh, situations or categories when affirmative consent is required. First is the sensitive data when you're collecting sensitive data. Second category is when you um, are performing automated decision making, which ties into the analytics stuff that we're going to be talking about just now. And the third category is if we are transferring data to a country that is not adequate. Okay, yes. gotcha. All right, so I think that uh, is uh, clarifies quite well the whole situation or gives a good overview of the storage. So far, we've talked about capture and storage. And finally, we get to the fun part, the processing of data to extract the insights. And what really surprised me here was when we were chatting about this podcast like a week ago and we were you know like you mentioned that one of the re one of the main reasons that GDPR came around is not actually to do with the data itself but it's actually what is done with the data how companies are now analyzing data what analytics is being applied and a lot of the legislation within or a lot of the um, sections of the GDPR actually apply not to just the storage or the capture of data, but the what is allowed, what you're allowed to do when you're processing the data and what you're not allowed to do when you're processing the data. So let's get started on that. But what's what's a bird's level, bird's eye overview of processing and GDPR? Sure. So I think it's important that we make a distinction between the data controller and the data processor because mm -hmm. those are two separate concepts. Okay, just, Although they just can to also be one clarify, and the same. Uh, when I say when yeah. I was saying processing, just for our listeners, I meant like any kind of analytics that we're doing. This is probably different. Like we're using different terminology here. So let's stick to yours. So yeah, you're right. Let yeah. we have <laughs> so controller it, and processing. No, so yeah, so the, so the controller is who is collecting the data, right? And and who is determining what gets done with the data. Mm -hmm. So the controller is is usually your first uh, company involved, right? Um, they they collect the data. And they say, I'm going to give it to this processor to do the data analytics on, mm -hmm. right? Um, the processor under the GDPR, we define it as a natural or a legal person, a public authority, an agency, or any other body that processes data on behalf of that data controller. So on behalf of the company that's collecting the data. So it can be one and the same. So it, the, the processor could be the controller. Exactly. Mm -hmm. The processor could be the controller. Um, the processor, if the processor is also doing some collection of data, the processor there could be a um, could be a co-controller mm -hmm. with the data. Um, and also, if the processor is making decisions itself. So, uh, an example that we've had is if an outside marketing company is hired by company A, so company A hires company B outside marketing company, company B, the marketing company, does 
uh, data analytics to decide maybe what products should best be uh, direct targeted or directly marketed to that uh, consumer. Well, if the company B, the analytics company, is also making the decision as to not just tell company A, here's the, the results, but is really undertaking to then perform something else. So is it then doing the marketing campaigns, right? Mm -hmm. Does it do the analytics and the marketing? Does it make some determination as to the outcome of what is done with that uh, analytics or what's done with that data? Well, then it also maybe is going to be a data controller. So it's important that we say there's two separate concepts, but in fact, they're also able to um, be, a, a, you know, be at points different, uh, different parts of that. So mm -hmm. one could be a controller here, one could be a processor here. Mm -hmm. Okay, understood. So you have two entities or like there's two roles, basically, controller and mm -hmm. the processor of data. Um, okay, and so as data scientists, we use different types of algorithms, different types of machine learning, um, insights, AI, deep learning, just business intelligence, lots of different approaches we have to analyze data. What does GDPR say about what is allowed and what's not allowed for us to perform on the data? Mm -hmm. So again, you're only allowed to perform what's what's necessary, what, what goes back to that legal basis. Mm -hmm. So it's not as though the, the analytics company is not allowed to take just any data set that's been given it to it um, and, and I'll get back to to that, but it's not allowed to just take anything and perform any analytics at once. It's only allowed to do so uh, to the extent that has been disclosed to the data subject, to the extent that has been told it should do so by the data controller. Uh, and that's that's very important that the data processor really sort of acts uh, at the whim of the data controller and isn't out there um, doing analytics uh, for various other things. But it's also important here to keep in mind when does data become uh, de-identifiable, right? So we're we're of course only talking about data that is identifiable to a certain data subject. Mm. So. If the, the data set cannot be re-identified, then that gets us into a different concept. However, the GDPR is very concerned, especially when we um, start combining data sets, that if two data sets out there in the world can be combined to re-identify that data, mm -hmm. right? not just necessarily by that data processor, but if two data sets out there in the world can be combined to re-identify it, then we still have to act in compliance with the GDPR. We still have to only process the data for a specific, uh, you know, legal basis. Uh, we still have to process it at the the whim of the controller. So that's something that's very important. We we like to think that data can be de-identified, um, but. The, the the GDPR and, and what we're finding is that a lot of data can, of course, especially when we get um, AI involved, can be re-identified. Mm -hmm. Okay, very interesting. So you actually touched on a very important point, I think, for everybody listening, is that 
Uh, indeed, of course, as you mentioned, if data can be re-identified, then that needs to still comply as if as if it hadn't been de-identified. We have to treat it okay. according to GDPR. But does that mean also that if we have properly de-identified data, uh, that there's no way that it can be re-identified? It's just basically, um, I don't know, like geographical locations of customers with the like with the latitude and longitude and nothing else in in this specific data set. Does that mean we don't have to apply GDPR to it and we can do whatever we want with it? it, it again, it really kind of comes back to can that at all be combined with another mm -hmm. data set? Mm -hmm. um, well, we examined at the course uh, the fact that they were talking about farmers who had received um, subsidies, for example. But they said, well, these are the farmers that have received subsidies and uh, when you look at actually how many farmers there were, based on the geolocation, there's only one potential farmer that, you know, farms ah. um, wheat that's located in uh, Czech Republic, right? Mm -hmm. um, so we really, really want to be careful as to whether at all out there in the world it can be re-identified. And, of course, I think that as more of course, as more data sets become available, mm -hmm. right, as this grows and grows and grows, then it's going to be difficult to actually say whether whether or not the data eventually can be re-identified. Um, but I think the goal is really just we want to want to try our best. And as data analytics um, persons and, and, and companies, uh, keep that in mind that do you have data sets out there that, that can be combined? Um, if you don't, then you can do a bit more. Uh, but if you do, then we want to be a little bit more careful as to what we're doing. Okay, okay, understood. Um, and speaking of uh, data scientists, now that we've got into the processing part, as a data scientist, I'm working, let's say, I'm working for organization X, and uh, I, am, I am working with a certain data set. Am I responsible, like, am I legally liable under GDPR for what happens to that data, or is it the organization that takes the responsibility from me and is responsible on my behalf? Yeah, so that gets us more into a concept of employer liability. Uh, it depends on what your relationship with that employer is. Are you an independent contractor? Mm -hmm. Are you an employee? Um, what have you? The ultimate responsibility a lot under GDPR does rest on the, the actual data controller, mm -hmm. right? So that's sort of your first line. Um, but also the data processor is the company that's in charge of showing that it has, for example, sufficient security measures in place. So both of the companies can be liable. As far as your personal liability, that depends on, uh, again, on this concept of employer liability. So is your employer going to turn around and sue you, mm. right? Potentially, uh, if you make a, a, an egregious error, but if you simply fail to comply with GDPR, Probably not. Mm -hmm. um, of course, I can't say yes or no. If you're an independent contractor, for example, that's been hired out, you have your own small data analytics company, you're hired to come do some work uh, for a processor, um, in that sense, you may have some more liability. But in terms of the fines under GDPR um, and whether you're going to be responsible under GDPR to a data protection authority, 
that's at this point a little more of a um, of a far leap. I mean, the the data protection authorities they don't want to be issuing fines necessarily. <laughs> Fifty million they're, they're euro fines. Exactly. Well, that, that's I mean that's that's for Google, but um, they they're what we're seeing is that it's more that the protection authorities say they just want compliance, right? So the first thing they're probably going to do is be sending a letter, a warning letter. They may halt some processing activities. That is an important thing that um, very well uh, is happening and may, and may happen, um, that processing has to stop, mm-hmm. right? Because it's not being done in a compliant manner. Mm-hmm. Those are the steps that are usually going to be taken before a fine is issued. Although I think that your podcast listeners should be aware the fines are quite hefty. Um, it's four percent of annual turnover for wow. twenty million euros um, are your uh, are your minimums um, there that are uh, that are available to the data protection authorities if they want to go with that. Four percent of annual turnover or twenty million euros, the minimum of the two. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's insane. So not even profit, it's like revenue, right? So if you're profit, yeah. <laughs> wow, that is that is out, outstanding. And okay, and so the comments that you mentioned are just for the for our listeners out there. If you're a freelancer, those are those really do apply to you because as in you're not an individual. When you're is this correct, Jessica? That when you're a freelancer, you're like an independent contractor, they kind of the same principles apply to. Yeah, freelancer, independent contractor, it's it's exactly the same thing. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. All right, very very interesting. Um, yeah. And I wanted to specifically talk about AI, artificial intelligence. So there, you mentioned there's some specific requirements within GDPR relating to artificial intelligence, and we're seeing more and more companies adopt AI. It's a very powerful technology, but it's also very fresh, very new in the world. What does GDPR say about artificial intelligence? Well, GDPR is very concerned with is data being processed um, by regular and systematic processing, right? Is it being processed um, where there's some kind of profiling, where there's scoring, where there's uh, where there's location tracking, for example, or is there behavioral advertising? Is there monitoring? Is there anything like this that's being done without human oversight or or by automated means? Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, the concern with GDPR is is one of the concerns with GDPR is that we're going to see companies making decisions that have a legal effect mm-hmm. on an individual because of uh, because AI has come in and said this is this individual's um, or this group of individuals uh, consumer habits so for example uh, we had a, we, we did a case study where we're talking about whether or not um, we're using a uh, health and fitness club, right? Mm-hmm. Does the health and fitness club uh, have a membership program or does it have a bracelet that the members wear that uh, does their tracking to say that they spend three hours here, they spend 30 minutes in the sauna area and then they go sit at the smoothie bar for 45 minutes and have a chat. And that data may be processed and that that data may be um, Process through through automated means, 
to determine, um, for example, if we think that that person is wealthy or we think that that person is poor, mm -hmm. right? Um, and that is, that's a legal effect. That's something that the GDPR wants to avoid if it's being done simply by automated means. So that's a big concern. We want to see that there's some kind of human oversight if possible. Um, and if there's not human oversight, really to take a hard look at what are the end results of this and has there been, is the data being processed based on uh, you know, consent or based on uh, transparency and accountability to that data subject? Do they know that decisions are being made about them based on automated means? Mm -hmm. And what, what do you say about the whole concept of AI being a black box? We've, uh, with, uh, with using AI and technology such as deep learning, we often come across situations where we cannot actually explain what the AI is doing. We have input, then there's a neural network, uh, maybe some reinforcement learning along the way, and then there's an output, and that's it. So we have we have our inputs, we have our outputs, which are fantastic, help us you know market better to the customers or segment mm -hmm. them better. But we don't know what the AI is doing with the data. What does GDPR say about that? Well, it says that we have to be accountable, mm. right? So if the data protection authority comes to uh, you and knocks on your door and says you're using AI. Uh, the data protection, I mean, we have to be able to tell them how the algorithm works. Mm -hmm. um, we have to be able to uh, pull out an individual's data if possible. We have to be able to modify that individual's data. We have to be able to tell the protection authority really more than anything else how that data was used, what, what was it used for. We don't necessarily have to give the, the algorithm over, of course, mm -hmm. I mean, that's that's a trade secret. but. Um, we have to be able to be accountable. We have to be able to show that we have some concept of, of, of what's going on um, and that uh, that we can at least give a, an explanation mm. <laughs> as to what data was put in um, and how it was used. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's, that's the main goal more than anything else. I don't personally think that they're that uh, incompatible. Mm -hmm. Um, AI and the GDPR, it's more just, are we are we transparent? Are we accountable? What do you think? Do you think that they're compatible? Good question. It's I, I find it quite a gray area. And I, I think ultimately they can be compatible, but at the same time, there's a lot of concern. And that's why one of the biggest trends, like we at London, I did a podcast at the start of the year on the trends for 2019. And one of the biggest trends is explainable AI, because Companies want to verge on the side of caution and want to rather, you know, maybe sacrifice a little bit of their efficiency in their artificial intelligence, but at the same time be able to explain what is going on. And I'll give you a specific example that Ben Taylor shared with me. I think it was Ben Taylor. It's um, an example of when it also involves this whole notion of accountability that you mentioned. Um, so, for instance, we have a data set where... Um, let's say a government authority is giving out fines to people for their driving, right? And uh, we, we want to make sure, we know that potentially uh, people can be biased, whether on, based on race or ethnicity, gender, and uh, speeding fines or other types of fines can be given out 
in a biased way. So we want to replace it with an artificial intelligence, this whole, whole process to make it unbiased. So we set up an artificial intelligence and deep, uh, deep uh, uh, learning algorithm inside with a neural network, and then we train it on all the past data. But guess what? All that data that we have with uh, you know, the certain um, circumstances described in a digital way and the outcome, whether a fine was given or not, that data is already biased. It's already, it already inherently okay. contains yeah. that racial, for example, bias. And then so the deep learning or the AI that you create is going to be by default already biased because it was trained on biased data. And then if you launch into production, even though you might say that we're using an artificial intelligence and therefore we are not, um, you know, we don't have that human bias and we're not uh, racist in the way we uh, perform this task, the AI can actually be racist because it was trained that way. And then the notion of accountability comes in because you have an AI which is a black box and you ultimately don't understand what's going on, but it is, the outcomes are racist and therefore you are now accountable as a business for that whole thing. So it's kind of like a give and take and it's an interesting combination of these two factors. On one hand, you have extremely powerful um, tools such as artificial intelligence. On the other hand, you do need to know how to use them properly. Otherwise, you get into a lot of trouble. Yeah, and you said that you're finding that uh, that you are running across companies though that want to err on the side of of doing what they can to be accountable and, and to be transparent. I, I think and I uh, think that's great. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say like I've met a lot of these companies, but based on the trend itself that explainable AI is more and more, you know, talked about and um, considered, I think that's that's the reason. That's where the world's going at this stage. Mm -hmm. And that's where the GDPR and 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 the law also wants to see that the world is going, <laughs> that we don't just have things running, uh, you know, running around out there and, and, and uh, processing being done um, as much as it can to every possible extent that it can be doing um, or that it can be done without being able to say why it's being done and what the outcome is. And that's, that's really where we want to, want to head is that things can be done uh, so long as everyone is on the same page and agrees with them. Yeah, totally, totally agree. Um, well, Jess, we're, we're, this has been an extremely exciting podcast and we're slowly coming to the end. I'd love to talk more about, we've got a ton of other questions. But I think an important point for us to cover here is um, at some point we're going to have to wrap up. So an important point is where uh, companies and anybody listening can get more additional information and that ties into the whole notion uh, of a data protection officer so gdpr requires that companies that are com are compliant or that are full under gdpr that they have a data protection officer tell us a bit about that what is a data protection officer and um why do companies need one Sure. So for under the GDPR, the data protection officer is sort of a new um, is a new position, uh, if you will. Uh, the data protection officer is really the individual that is the 
um, flag bearer, I guess you would say, for the company that shows its accountability. So if a data subject comes and says, hey company, I want to know every single piece of data that you have on me, I want to know every processor you shared it with, I want to know what those processors are doing with it, I want you, I don't like that you're using this processor, I want you to tell them to delete my data, whatever it is. The data protection officer is the individual that is really the point person for dealing with all of that. And is also the person that's a responsible for dealing with the data protection authorities. Every country, every member state in the EU has a data protection authority. So is the individual that's responsible for dealing with those. Um, it is uh, mandatory to have a data protection officer under a few circumstances. So one of those is if the uh, processing is being carried out by a public authority, right? The second one is if there's uh, regular and systematic monitoring of individuals is the core of the processing activities. So again, um, here we have uh, the data analytics come into play, or if there is sensitive data that is at the core of the processing activities um, where there's large-scale processing. So those are the times that companies uh, are required to have a data protection officer. Uh, it's somebody that can be in-house, somebody that can be just hired on retainer, if you're a small company, whatever it may be. But uh, that is really the, the role of, of the, the DPO. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. And uh, the data protection officer needs to be based in Europe, is that correct? The data protection officer does not need to be based in Europe, but um, does need to be well-trained and well-versed on, uh, on the GDPR and needs to have a, a pretty solid understanding of it. Um, there are certification courses available um, and there is training. My company as well offers on retainer um, DPO, uh, DPO assistance as well for companies that may not need or have the resources to hire their own person in-house. Mm. And actually, congratulations on that. That's a, uh, like you, you mentioned this uh, to me just before, it's a, I think it's a big step uh, and I think it's actually needed. So with this uh, new legislation coming out, there's so many businesses out there, um, especially in the small to medium size enterprises that just don't have that presence or don't have the budget to train up somebody who's uh, is going to be capable to be their data protection officer. And companies such as yours, where they can get that person on retainer and be confident that everything's going to be done well, that's just like a lifesaver. So for anybody listening out there, highly recommend uh, if you need a data protection officer, then get in touch with Jessica and she can help you out, set you up, or at least provide you the right guidance and point you in the right direction. So thank you very much for mentioning that, Jessica. Thank you. Awesome. Okay, so on that note, I think we're going to wrap up. This has been a fantastic podcast. Before I let you go, where would where is the best way, what is the best way for our listeners to contact you, get in touch with you, Jess? Sure. So I think LinkedIn is probably the easiest. Um, um, I think my name will probably be there in your show notes, but mm -hmm. it's uh, Jessica Merlet, M-E-R-L-E-T. Or you can also uh, send me an email at info at MerleyLaw.com. Gotcha. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Jess, once again for coming on the show and sharing all these amazing insights. I'm sure it's going to be super valuable 
for those of our listeners out there that um, are like can't wait to soak in all this knowledge and actually enhance their careers with it. Thank you so much. Thank you. So there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. That was Jessica Merle, the founding and principal attorney of the law office of Jessica Merle and its European counterpart, Merle Legal Consulting. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. There was so much going on, so many different aspects of GDPR and data privacy that we talked about. I can't, it's really hard to even pick my favorite one. Probably all of these things combine the whole notion that it is important for data scientists, uh, data analysts, uh, businesses that actually use data to keep these things in mind, to make sure that they're treating their data or their customers' data properly and looking after it and that they do take that responsibility. And all the insights that Jessica shared with us today are definitely going to be helpful for us to stay on track with that. If you'd like to find out more information or get in touch with Jessica, then make sure to head on over to superdatascience.com slash 237. That's superdatascience.com slash 237, where you will get all of the links and materials mentioned in uh, the show, the transcript for the episode, the cheat sheet that we've prepared for you with a summary of everything that we talked about today, and of course, the URL to Jessica's LinkedIn and her email where you can contact her. Don't forget that Jessica has specific services tailored for GDPR compliance and helping set up a data protection officer for startups, small to medium enterprises, and any kind of business that needs assistance in that space. And of course, if you need some legal advice or you want to just hit up Jessica with some questions, make sure to connect with her on LinkedIn and stay in touch. And finally, if you enjoyed this episode and you know somebody who has questions about GDPR or you know a business owner or an executive or a director, somebody who you think might benefit from the information that we discussed today, that was shared on this episode today, then don't just keep it to yourself, share it with them. Send them a link to this podcast. The best link to send is superdatascience.com slash 237. That's where this episode is available, plus all the show notes, and they can get these insights as well. So if you know somebody that can benefit from this, then make sure to send them this link, superdatascience.com slash 237. On that note, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate your time, and I hope we delivered on our promise of amazing podcasts and I look forward to seeing you back here next time. Until then, happy analyzing.